0: Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today, Helen Thompson and I are joined by the historian Tom Holland, historian of the ancient world, and we're going to talk about power, corruption, morality, decay, then and maybe now. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. I went to see that Robert Harris trilogy, the the two that they did uh, in the West End about Cicero, Tom, and and you wrote the piece in the programme, drawing the comparisons then and now. And the audience, I mean, everyone is kind of like, just completely taken on board the thought that this must have been a story, the story of Cicero, the story of the end of the Republic, must have lessons for us. And maybe it does. And yet there's also, I think, a feeling when you look at it, that there's never been probably a period in the history of modern democracies or the history of the American Republic, where people don't wonder, are we Or even further back. Or further back. Are we living through... I mean, it's just the kind of story that everyone goes to all the time when they think they need a template for the end of things. Is it just the story that dominates all the others? The, The one that we can't get away from?
1: I think it's because of the distinctive relationship that the West and what previously been called the Latin West has with ancient Rome the fact that this empire existed that it was so immense that it stretched from Scotland to the Persian Gulf and now it's utterly gone haunts the imagination but if you think of an oak and when an oak dies it continues to sustain ecosystems the kind of the mulch of the trunk and the roots continues to feed creatures and Rome has similarly has provided a kind of civilizational mulch so it sustained Islamic civilization even though Islam defined itself as being in opposition to Rome but you think of the baths or more saliently the idea of a kind of universalist god-guided empire that's clearly a roman idea that has fed into islam then of course there's the civilization of the second rome constantinople and although we call the people who lived in that byzantines they called themselves romans they were romeoi but for both muslims and for the byzantines the rome that they look back to was the rome of the christian empire it was the rome of constantine and justinian what's distinctive about the latin west is that although constantine was a hugely significant figure particularly in the middle ages we have always looked back beyond that to the pagan empire, to the Antonine peace, to Augustus, to Julius Caesar, right the way back through the Republic to Romulus and Remus, and then ultimately to Aeneas. And there has never been a moment, probably since it was written, that the Aeneid has not been read in what was the lands of the Western Empire. And so for that reason, Rome for us in the West has the quality almost of a kind of great work of science fiction that it is both simultaneously very familiar and very strange and the familiarity amplifies the strangeness and vice versa and I think that that is why no matter what your politics no matter what your assumptions you can always look into the mirror of Rome and find something that reflects or distorts where you are at the present It's always been like that, ever since Rome fell.
0: It's probably, I think, fair to say that the Robert Harris version goes for the familiarity over the strangeness. It makes a conscious effort, I think, to to normalise some things, particularly some forms of politics that we would find pretty well, alien if we saw them in the raw. The first
1: volume is dedicated to Peter Mandelson. Indeed. Um, that's,
0: that's a form of normalisation. <laughs> yeah. That's one and way so, to normalise I mean,
1: it. He, he, he read Rubicon, the book that, that I read about, yeah. The Decline of the Republic. That's Harris, not, time, not Mandelson. Yes, yes. <laughs> Robert Harris. At a time when he was looking for a way to write about, basically, the Blair Project, he suddenly realised that perhaps the Roman Republic could provide him with that stage and I mean I don't think he would ever say that he was writing a kind of accurate attempt to recreate exactly how it was that's not what a novelist like Robert Harris is aiming to do he's aiming to, to be creative, he's aiming to extract what he can that suits his purposes from this extraordinary story
2: I think what's interesting as well though is, is that every period of history in Europe and indeed North America, certainly in the United States, gets to a certain point, and they want to have a fight about what the end of the Republic meant. So if you look at 18th century British politics, they are you know, writing competing histories of the end of the Republic, and who you side with in that can pretty much tell you what side you're going to be on in the 18th century dispute between the Whigs and the Tories. So why is that the case? Is it because actually... Aside from all the things that you so clearly set out, is it because it's such an unresolved political story and that it is possible to read the end of The Republic in quite a number of yeah. different ways? Is it a story about power? Is it a story about morality? Is it a story about decay? Is it a story about the relationship between empire and the republic? So that we are always able, if we want to take a side in our present disputes, to latch onto something about... The last century of the Republicans say, "Oh, it's like that. We're on that side because I think we're committed exactly to these." It. I think
1: that it's the primal narrative in yeah. the Western political tradition. It's the narrative that people always look back to, and the reason that it is so effective in serving the interests in the way you've spelt out is that it does kind of serve as a gauge for where you stand politically. So I called the book Rubicon because Rubicon is the river in northern Italy that marks the dividing line between Italy and Caesar's province of Gaul. And, and by crossing the Rubicon, you know, famously, he then initiates a civil war that results in the collapse of, of the Republic. So the Rubicon serves as a dividing line between the Republic and the age of what we would, you know, the imperial rule of, of what will become the Caesars. Now, is that a dividing line between liberty and slavery? which is essentially what Tacitus, the greatest Roman historian, sets it out like? Or is it a dividing line between anarchy and chaos and order, which is essentially what Virgil is arguing in the Aeneid? So where you stand on that, (laughs) that tension tells you a lot about where you are. And it's a disagreement that is not just political. It runs through, through the way that classicists and ancient historians understand it as well. So Ronald Syme, wrote the classic account of it the roman revolution and he wrote it in the late 1930s and so augustus is portrayed as a mussolini there's a chapter called the march on rome but i've just read a book by the great historian tp wiseman in which augustus is cast as a defender of the of the liberties of the people overthrowing a corrupt and oppressive oligarchy so these are issues that are not immediately resolvable. It... I
2: think the same thing about Cicero as well. It's interesting that Harris picked on that because is Cicero the great defender of order and liberty in the stable republic, the balanced constitution, using his elegant rhetoric to virtuous ends, or is he the defender of a class-based order in which the lower classes are essentially having their interests injured by the patrician class and that the senate is not defending virtue and liberty or any of the things that um, Cicero puts in his speeches but he's actually defending he's actually defending naked class interests.
1: And a further question is is Cicero what he was held to be through the middle ages and into the renaissance the model of what it is to be an engaged figure in political life a master of oratory, a master of of rhetoric, a master of the arts of politics, or was he an ineffectual windbag who used slogans to disguise the fact that actually he didn't really have any power at all? That's a really live issue for us now.
0: To go back to Helen's point about what the pull of this, I mean, it's a double pull. It's both open-ended. You can interpret it in lots of different ways, and it is ended, there is a rubicon. There is an end moment, and we're always looking for our moment of truth. You know, we don't know. Are we? Are we at the end of this? Are we at the end of that? And with the Roman story, there is a, a moment which is the ending. So, particularly in the United States, I think that kind of end of the Republic rhetoric.
1: Yeah, I, but but I think it also elides with the, the fall of the empire itself, with the idea that Rome, Rome civilization collapses. Right. There's, the, so, big, there's so there, the big. There's the And ending. so there's an e- even bigger one, and the fact that that America. Consciously modelled itself on the Republic. These are virtuous farmers, civically minded, rising up against a monarch, throwing it out, establishing an empire of liberty with a Senate, with a Capitol. If you've got a Capitol, <laughs> what everybody knows about the Capitol is that it ends up in ruins. And so that dread of ruin has always shadowed America. It's a kind of dual one because, as you say, it's a dread of a Caesar arising and the whole constitution is basically, you will know this better than me, but as as I understand it, is essentially structured to try and ensure that a Caesar does not emerge. Ironically, one might say. Ironically. But then on top of that, there's this kind of nagging anxiety which China, for instance, does not have. Your civilization may be utterly eradicated and destroyed and that the barefoot friars may wander past the the Temple of Jupiter or whatever as Gibbon famously noted so there's a kind of double dread of what might happen particularly in republics. You know the whole story in in the story of the French Revolution is utterly compressed so you know king is thrown out, there's a republic, the republic's collapsed, you've got a a Caesar and then the goths come.
0: (laughs) So another way you can do the choice, how do we interpret this and Helen and I have been talking about this Helen might want to tell me I've got this wrong. But there's a fundamental question and it ties in with some arguments in contemporary American political science. The end of the Republic, was it because the people were bad or went bad, were corrupted in some ways, corrupted by wealth or luxury or whatever? Or were the institutions corrupted? That is, were the norms? This is the language that political scientists would use now. The fear for American democracy is not so much that a particularly bad group of people have taken over because human beings are human beings. They're kind of good and bad in equal measure through the ages. But that the institutions and the norms that hold the institutions together, the ideas that there are expectations about how people behave, that's what's being corrupted.
1: I think that there is a risk that the Roman Republic is a false friend in the linguistic sense, that it looks familiar and that so this um, is back to the strange yes, question yes and 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 that with america and and france in particular there was a kind of conscious attempt to model its institutions and its look on roman models and so therefore it's often tempting to draw analogies that in fact are illusory i think and i think that the the republic you know it, it raised publica is kind of public affairs, so it's not even a constitution it's a warren of strange precedents and laws and compacts with the gods that have evolved over many centuries and have all kinds of you know equivalents of an an appendix uh, or a coccyx things that are still there but have long ceased to serve any particular function so it in no way corresponds to a a kind of modern constitutional state didn't function like that and the other thing is that, that there are assumptions that govern the way that the Romans seem to have seen themselves that again are very strange and I say seem because of course by and large our evidence comes from the elites as is always the case but I think it is it's possible to see that the essence of the Republic and what made it successful what made Rome so powerful was a kind of very carnivorous sense of a civic compact between everyone who had an identity as Roman And in a way, if you want a modern analogy, it's not the West Wing that provides it, it's the Sopranos. It is, the Roman state was a kind of mafia state. You got compacted in. But again, that's not entirely fair, because on top of that, you do seem to have had a very strong sense of civic virtue the idea that you consecrate your identity to the success of the community as a whole and that's more than just the kind of the self-interest of a mafia soldier you are consecrating yourself to something noble and inspiring and that is something clearly that people in the enlightenment and in 19th century did find very inspiring and of course in its own way the fascists did as well and that's Another shadow that now hangs over attempts to draw parallels between Rome and the modern.
2: I think the other difference is that the Americans take an idea that comes out of the Roman Republic and the writings about the Roman Republic, which is the mixed constitution. But the Americans basically construct their republic by separating powers between the different branches of government whereas although you've got some of that going on in Rome their idea of the mixed constitution is more about balancing class interests within the republic and then the balance between those class interests changes over time so the aristocrats and represented in the senate have to make concessions to the plebeians over time and then you have a period where that kind of compromise breaks down and then you start getting the rise of what likes to be called you know like more popular politics and that rise of popular politics then gets seen as something that is destructive of constitutional and institutional norms and that Julius Caesar's triumph at the end is kind of the culmination of that story. But what they're fighting about, let's just personalise it as Caesar versus Cicero for the, the moment, is basically class conflicts about land reform and debt. So the constitution's in a way constantly trying to adapt to the changing balance of power between the classes that is happening in relation to what's happening in the empire as much as anything else and in the end the constitution can't deal with that it can't actually resolve those problems in a in a peaceful way but the americans rejected that whole notion of mixed government imbalance in the classes in the way in which they constructed their republic It was about what the institutions themselves did and how the power that each had was used to check each other now i still think there's a legacy of that sort of class-based conflict that's there in the Rome Republic and what we see now not least because any attempt in which the lower classes are given more political influence gets deemed as something that's constitutionally irresponsible but it's not the same kind of republic.
0: Because that was going to be my question so the parallel that is drawn now is you called it popular, popular and it's now populist so Trump is a representative of those classes and he poses a threat to the American constitution as you say, not because he's a representative of those classes, but because the behaviour that comes from that is challenging the norms of separation of powers. I'm currently reading the Muller report. He is definitely challenging those norms. But do you think that the popular populist thing doesn't work for the reasons you said?
2: I think that it does and it doesn't. I think that's what's interesting um, we'll come about in why you can read different things into it. I think that's what was Harris was going after because. He wants parallels with members of the patrician class who make irresponsible, feckless promises in seeking out the popular
0: vote. So it's the Boris Johnson, I mean, yeah. in the play, that's the that gets the laugh, everyone gets the Boris reference. And Boris was there on various nights laughing along in his Boris so way. So it, it, it's not that... Which is what Augustus was said to do. He yeah. would laugh at jokes made about himself. Oh, I <laughs> don't know what to make of that.
1: Well, because he was very Augustus was a brilliantly skillful politician who knew that um, you had to keep the upper classes on side by showing them respect, but you also had to keep the people on side by showing that you were a good sport.
2: Yeah, so it's about in that view is is that irresponsible patricians who use the grievances of the lower classes in order to seek power for themselves. And that is a narrative that I think people in Europe and the United States have come back to time and time again. And in some sense, the American Constitution and Madison's commitments are kind of an attempt to try and ensure that that can't happen in American politics. But the other way of looking at it is to say, actually, it's the Senate that represents an aristocratic class that simply won't get to grips with the problem of the lower classes, the need for land reform, the problem of debt, and that it uses the arguments about violating institutional norms in order to try to suppress the grievances of those classes. And I think that that tension between the way in which, say, people interpret the Brexit vote and Johnson's role in particular in it is still, is still part of our politics.
1: Again, I think that there is a risk of, of not recognising just how strange to our way of thinking the way that Romans saw themselves and the way that they saw their relationship to the Roman state. Essentially, what the Republic offered every individual roman from the highest to the lowest was an opportunity to demonstrate virtus to demonstrate you know, virtus means properly being a man so to fulfill your manhood and if you are at the top of the tree then you can do that by winning the consulship as your ancestors did and perhaps ultimately becoming a, a censor and the censor is the greatest office that uh, the republic has to offer and the reason for that is that the censor every five years works out exactly within complex levels of stratification your individual citizen ranks so every citizen within the republic knows where he is situated in terms of rank and status and how his fellows will look at him what that also offers is you can go down but you can go up So there is this kind of idea, which perhaps you have in the idea of, you know, going from the log cabin to the White House, the idea that everyone can ultimately improve themselves. The genius of the Roman state in its kind of palmiest days is that it is able to turn this desire to manifest your virtus, to show yourself a man outwards against Carthaginians, against Gauls, whatever. Now, the Roman narrative is that this process then corrupts that sense of virtus, that the influx of wealth, it sort of clogs up the arteries of virtue and courage and civic responsibility. And everyone gets obsessed with celebrity chefs and exotic Greek sex manuals and all this kind of stuff. And they're not devoting themselves to the kind of things that that, that a Roman properly should. And... You know, in a Marxist age, we're obviously highly suspicious of that and tend to see it all as being expressive of deep-rooted class interests. But I think that there is a case for saying that Romans did feel a sense of community that was founded on that sense that everybody had a stake in it and that the loss of that was felt as a kind of bereavement. Over the course of the final century of the Republic's existence leading political figures advanced to the degree to which they were able to offer poorer Roman citizens the chance to recapture a sense of themselves as men. And there were essentially two approaches to that, and they were not party political, so it was not the equivalent of Conservative and Labour or Republican and Democrat. It was based on whether you identified yourself with the ancient stern unbending traditions that were exemplified in the senate or whether you identified yourself with the roistering traditions that were associated with the populace with the people this was less about policy than it was about style and in that sense i think it does hold up a fascinating mirror to what's going on in america at the moment because you would say that Trump and, and McCain are both Republicans, they're both in the same party, but everyone recognises that they are polar opposites. McCain he what? belongs to the optimates, what? he belongs what? to sure. the Boni, he belongs to the class of to which Cicero also belongs, that you know, there are ideals, there are standards that every Roman is called to live up to and these are ancient and they probably involve eating turnips at some point and they involve kind of dipping yourself in cold showers and all that kind of thing whereas a popularis is someone who doesn't necessarily you know he doesn't put on mockney necessarily although some of them do But you you have swagger. You have pizzazz. You understand what it is that the people want to see in a leader. And Caesar is absolutely the archetype of that. He's a fashionable dandy. He blows fortunes that he doesn't have on all kinds of extravagances. He puts on gladiatorial shows where everyone wears golden armour. This is the kind of thing that appalls McCain-type senators, but the people love. And... An obvious earlier prototype of that in, in contemporary politics would be Berlusconi with his use of football and game shows and things. You know, Berlusconi appalls responsible Italian senators, but he obviously has a, you know a broad constituency for this kind of stuff.
0: Talking politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Need to stock up on any weather wardrobe staples? Check out American Giant for hoodies, jackets, sweats, and more pieces you can wear anywhere, all made right here in the USA. Go to American-Giant.com and use code ANYSTYLE24 for 20% off your order. The other difference, and Harris doesn't shy away from this, so the other strangeness is the violence. I mean, the extent to which violence runs all the way through the politics of the ancient world, everywhere, but including in... The Roman Republic, and the stakes just were higher personally. So that's the mafia side of it. You, you get it wrong, you take a wrong move, you cross someone. Although that only
1: happens with the Gracchi. So the Gracchi are people who, uh, from the elite, who are pushing for land reform, who are essentially taking the side of the masses and who get dispatched and beheaded, beaten to death, but with chair legs in a kind of senatorial counterpunch. But the fact that they get beheaded is precisely the the horror of it because beheading is, is a kind of thing barbarians do, Romans do not behead and so this casts a shadow and the fact that it is seen as shocking is reflective of the degree to which until that point the Roman state had preserved an internal order then you get the shock of Sulla again he's a kind of he's aristocratic but he's a he's a louche playboy who marches on Rome with his legions and then goes abroad, wins a a few stonking victories, comes back, establishes a dictatorship. And dictator is an office that in times of particular peril a Roman leader can have for six months and then has to lay it down. So it's purely time restricted. Sulla he reorders the constitution. He reorders the kind of the setup of things, the way that magistrates get voted for, the length of time, all that kind of thing. But then he lays down his office, and there is then a kind of precarious sense that the republic is back up and running. But of course, it now exists under the shadow of the violence of the Gracchi and of the, the military putsch launched by Sulla. What is, I think, astonishing about the last decades of the republic is is not that it comes to an end, but that it lasts as long as it does. Because what Sulla has demonstrated is, of course, that it's military power. It's not magistracies. It's not um, the respect of of your fellow senators or the people.
0: Not even winning elections.
1: No, it's having legions behind you. And to the extent that, you know, later Roman moralists will say that it is greatness, it is Roman sway that destroys the republic, they're right. Because what happens is that first you get Pompey the Great... Pompeius Magnus his conceit is so philosophical that that he calls himself the great he's always posing he's got a kind of Elvis style quiff he affects the cloak of Alexander the great and he can do this because from a young age he's been a favorite of the people they've given him a, a magistracy that exceptionally has spanned the whole of the Mediterranean to clear it of pirates he is then given a command to go and sort out the Near East which has been thrown into absolute chaos by the Roman reluctance to annex it while keeping it in its shadow And Pompey then comes back from the Near East, you know, with kings in his train, vast amounts of wealth, large numbers of legions. But he doesn't, he doesn't seize control. And his enemies in the Senate are able to stymie his ambition to settle his his veterans, for instance. And... It's an immense tribute to the power of Roman tradition and the hold that these civic traditions have on um, Roman leaders that even someone as ambitious and politically thuggish as Pompey never really crosses his mind to establish a military dictatorship. The guy who kind of recognises that and who has commented on what a fool Sulla was for laying down his power is Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar recognises that you simply cannot have power in rome without having an army behind you and that's what his his conquests in gaul are all about
2: i mean i think this raises the interesting question about what the relationship of the empire is to all this is it in the end that having a republic is not compatible with the empire in part because the empire does raise individuals give them military power Sulla, caesar Pompey before, but I just wanted to pick up one thing you said before. Before we get to the empire, and that is, is that I think that the the killing of the the Gracchi is a really interesting moment because the narrative, let's call it the Cicero narrative, if we want to say that, kind of wants to identify the populares as the people who break the norms. But actually, that first shedding of blood, so to speak, in the Republic after centuries where it hasn't happened at least on the streets, is actually done by the Senate. Yeah, the first act of like breaking down the norms is actually the senate against the popularis rather than the other way around but i think that if you go back to the period that you're talking about up to caesar's rise the question and i think this is the other reason and in some sense why the point where the two spectres of the end the end of the republican eventual end of the empire come together is it actually that the empire destroys the republic
1: well again something that is very different from us The Romans don't have a sense of progress. So everything is good if it's old. The Roman state evolves at an an incredible lick. It's very adaptable. But its adaptation always has to be disguised as going back to the source. And essentially, as you say, the argument in the last century of the Republic between those who want to enshrine senatorial power as the, the arbiter of what should be done in the state and those who are more concerned to essentially base their power in their popularity with the people, both of them are looking back to the past. Both of them are casting their enemies as kind of dangerous subversives who are undermining the traditions of the Roman state. And the genius of Augustus, when he emerges out of the carnage and slaughter of years of of civil war that followed Julius Caesar's crossing of the Rubicon, the genius of Augustus is that he is able to contain these tensions and paradoxes within him so with the senate he disguises his power he is primus inter pares he's just one of them but everyone knows that he's He's not he's he's got these (laughs) legions he's got these legions along the frontiers and with the people he gives them entertainments you know he likes a laugh at his own expense he is seen wearing kind of battered straw hat like a any Roman farmer and his genius is to fuse the kind of Optimate and the Popularist traditions within him what then happens over the course of the succession is that you have a kind of yo-yo between those two traditions so you have Tiberius who is an Optimate to his very teeth he despises the people he's a a Claudian the kind of the grandest snootiest, sniffiest of of all the, uh, the, the great Roman families And so that massively influences the way that he's seen and remembered. The people do not like him. Then, of course, you have Caligula, who likewise the Senate hate because Caligula pushes the idea of giving the people what they want to to massive extremes. Claudius swings back to the Optimae Nero, back to the the Popularist tradition. But if you look at at how Caligula and, and Nero are remembered and then you look at how the liberal press write about Trump, you can kind of see why it was that uh, that Nero was very popular that people laid flowers on his grave after he died but simultaneously why those
0: who write the histories absolutely (laughs) detested him I I just want to push one more Trump analogy and it goes back to Helen's point about the Gracchi and, and who first broke the norms because there is that sense of angst in the American political establishment at the moment around this question what's the point at which so there there's a consciousness or a feeling that some of the norms of the republic are being eroded by Trump. But to take Trump down might require the really crucial step in going outside of those norms. I mean, impeachment is this complicated question, but as it were, to remove him outside of an election. So it's not going to be beheading, right? And it's not probably going to be an overt act of violence. But in constitutional terms, there is this kind of almost terror are we going to have to be the ones And, and and bear in
1: mind that what precipitates caesar's crossing of the rubicon is precisely a legal threat of that kind caesar has spent 10 years in gaul winning great glory for the republic conquering vast new territories plundering gold sending it back beautifying the city so he deserves right by the state but his enemies are jealous of him and they have maneuvered things that they are waiting to prosecute him once he has laid down his political office and therefore loses his immunity from prosecution. And the dilemma that Caesar faces is, does he stay within the constitution, lay down his powers, go back to Rome and have his career destroyed? Or does he cross the Rubicon with his armies? When he's walking the battlefield of Pharsalus, where he's destroyed the armies of his enemies, he says, this is what they wanted. They wanted this. You know, they pushed me, Caesar, after all I'd done into this corner. And there's no question that Caesar and his followers, of whom there were many... Regarded the legal maneuvering of Caesar's enemies as petty and unconstitutional; that the law was illegal. That rings a bell.
2: I noticed that Lindsey Graham was saying something um, yesterday. I think about how he didn't want America to go down the road of using basically political prosecutions against families, talking both about um, Hunter Biden and about Donald Trump Jr. Well. Uh, but I think there is the difference in the in the Rome case, and this is where again I think it is alien. Is is, is that these were essentially weren't they private prosecutions that could be brought yes. against individuals there's nothing yes. like a state prosecutor well, that, that also, can neutrally decide and, these things and and, and, again, and
1: again it's important to emphasize that the essence of the roman state is is a patronage system so it's about great families and a patronus of course gives us the english word patron but it also gives us padrone the uh, italian word for a godfather That essentially is is how the Roman system functioned, that every great family offered benefits of clientage to to people, and that's how it functioned. The greater a figure you were, the more benefits you could offer your your clients. The reason that the Republic collapses is that in time kings become clients. Cleopatra essentially is Caesar's client and then becomes Antony's client. And that means that all the lands that have been conquered by Rome become kind of collateral damage in shootouts between these rival padroni and the final shootout is between Antony and the young Caesar Octavian as he's called who who will become Augustus what Augustus is is then able to do is to establish himself as the ultimate godfather everything flows from him and that then is sufficiently stable that it's able to provide not just the city of Rome but all the vast swathe of territories and provinces that Rome has conquered with the kind of the security that, you know, a, a good man, a godfather can offer shopkeepers. We've and heard. so that and that, again, focuses the issue on, you know, what's more important, order or freedom? You know, what what do you go for? What, what's better? Is it better to live under a free republic where everyone's tearing the chunks out of each other? Or is it better to accept the mastery of of a single man but live in peace?
0: So another strangeness, familiarity question that comes up in that context is just about power and personal powers. This is partly about Rome, but the whole ancient world, emperors, then moving forward, popes and others, extraordinary power in the hands of one person. And we live in a world where in some ways the power is greater. So Trump has the nuclear button. Zuckerberg, there was the famous cover of The Economist with Zuckerberg as Augustus, thumbs up, thumbs down. So his network is 2.2 billion people, an unimaginable scale of power, and yet not the same kind of power. So no, it's not, 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 not Cleontalist all. power. Not it's not all. life and death power. As someone who moves from the ancient to the modern and back again, is the quality of power, is there anything about it that's unchanging? Or, is, or should well, we resist those I, parallels?
1: You, you, you mentioned popes. Actually, the power between, of popes and emperors is radically different. It's the Christianization of Rome that explains where we are now because what happens with Rome is that it has a sense of itself as a civic entity that is potent carnivorous even it despises barbarians it feels free to conquer them it feels free to slaughter them it feels free to to enslave them but what ultimately happens is that the whole world becomes Roman and over the course of the second third fourth centuries a.d. The challenge for Roman emperors and for the Roman state is not to affirm the distinctiveness of the citizens of Rome, of the city, but to find a way in which all the various peoples who live within the the framework of the empire can be constituted as Roman. There are various attempts at this. So Caracalla, at the beginning of the third century, gives every free male within the empire citizenship. Various gods are auditioned for the role of a kind of supreme god who can serve as the divine patron of the roman empire which is equated with the world christianity passes the audition because christianity has at its core the idea that there is no greek or jew you know there is no slave or free even right there is no man or woman really radically but it has the idea that the roman state is able to synthesize is is the christian idea that all human beings are created equally in the image of god And this becomes an incredibly potent one that, of course, in due course outlives Rome. So the city of man, Rome, falls. The city of God, as described by Augustine, survives and endures. And that sets up a polarity that then passes into early medieval and high medieval Europe. There is the dimension of politics. There is... The dimension of the flux of earthly things and that is defined by the cyclum and the cyclum in latin originally means the span of human memory 100 years 120 years it comes to mean 100 years so hence century men live they die things pass away against that you have the order of god that is eternal so you have the idea of there being this dimension of the cyclum and then this dimension which the church has has control gets absolutely embedded down in the 11th century church radicals are able to seize control of the bishopric of rome and kind of essentially establish it as the papacy as the head of a kind of pan global state but it's one that is transplanted from from the dimension of the cyclone and therefore from the dimension of earthly kingdoms. And so embedded within Western political discourse is the idea that you have earthly politics, but there is also something more beyond that. That, of course, in itself becomes a source of immense political power. So that's what enables the papacy (laughs) to send armies off to Jerusalem or Lithuania or whatever. And then... That power gets contested, and the Reformation and then into the Enlightenment, this idea, this idea that there is a kind of moral validation, a dimension of progress, of improvement of moral improvement, becomes something that people compete after. It reflects this kind of primal idea that there is the, the, the secular, and, and of course, what becomes beyond the dimension of the secular. But that, that, that is a division that does not exist in antiquity. It simply does not exist. And so you have to set that one side. You know, I mean, Zuckerberg, you know, he has this immense power, but he's, he, Facebook is seen as being morally highly problematic. And the moral criticisms of it, therefore, are a massive threat to him.
0: And in a century, it might not be here. Yeah, very, very off the cyclone.
2: So one of the things that is, I think, increasingly noticeable in the last few years is that it isn't just in the West that the idea of Rome and what it represented, including in the sense that you've just been talking about its later Christian sense, seems to be part of political discourse that Vladimir Putin is quite keen on presenting himself as a Roman emperor. And he's also quite keen on the idea of Russia as a successor to Byzantium as the third Rome. Why is it that... The imaginative legacy of Rome goes to the east well, as well as to the west. And is there anything that's going to give Putin any real political purchase in his rather personal exercise of power? There's, there's a wonderful paradox
1: about this, which is, of course, that you know, we've been talking about parallels between Rome and, and America, but you know, as we've also said, what we know about Rome is the republic falls, the republican system collapses, and then Rome itself falls. What we know it decline and fall. That is the essence of it. For Russia, it's different because although the first Rome falls, although the second Rome, Constantinople, falls, the torch of Romanitas has passed from Rome to Constantinople to Moscow. This is the, the tradition. The, the niece of the last emperor of Byzantium marries Ivan III and he is hailed by Philotius, this monk, as the ruler of the third Rome. And the third Rome will never fall. And this is an idea that passes down through the emergence of the Russian Empire. So when they annex the Crimea, the Crimea is important to Catherine the Great. And Potemkin hails it in these terms and says, you know, we've taken back the land that was ruled by Rome and where the ancestors of the Slavs were baptised into the Orthodox faith. Crimea is doubly holy to us because it it links us to the first Rome and to the second Rome. This kind of obviously went into abeyance in the Soviet period, but even then you had this extraordinary story, which may be apocryphal, but even if it's apocryphal, it doesn't matter because it, it's revealing about the stories that are told. How when the Nazis reached the borders of Moscow, Stalin sends an icon up in a plane to go round the limits of Moscow in exactly the way that when Constantinople was besieged, they would send icons up onto the wall, and the and the Virgin would be seen patrolling. You know, so these are deep that that, that have a living integrity in Russia in a way that they don't in the West. And for Putin, Crimea matters in the way that it mattered to Catherine the Great. You remember the famous image of him discovering <laughs> a Greek amphora in, in, in the Black Sea. This is a really kind of potent idea, as, of course, is the idea that they're getting back into contact with the wellsprings of their Christianities. you had all the images of priests blessing the, the plains when they go in. Whereas in the West, I think, you know, there's a massive reticence in claiming any link with Rome because of the fascists because all that iconography, the eagles, the standards, it's unsettling, whereas in Russia they don't have that issue. So the paradox is that in a sense the identification with Rome is vastly stronger in Moscow than it is in Washington.
0: I mean could you almost say that in the West Rome has become a kind of morality tale there but for the grace of God? I think so. And in Russia it is the grace of God, you know, it's (laughs) it's not there but for, and so these are completely diametrically opposed. I mean we are living in different worlds in that respect. I think we find it difficult. Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, has
1: explicitly said that Russia is the heir of Byzantium and therefore ultimately of Rome. And this is something that means that Russia is deserving of respect. And likewise in China, you know, the the sense of, of China as an ancient civilization going back beyond the revolution all the way back to the first emperor, it's a really important part of Chinese cultural identity. Whereas in the West... Rome is a much more
2: ambivalent, it's, it's bloodstained and it fell. What is interesting here is, is, is that if you look in, in Britain, say, in the 18th century, there was a party that looked enthusiastically in the end at Caesar, which were the, the Tories, or at least part of the Tory party, the country part of the Tory party. Once you get into the 20th century, though, and once that, the emperor and Caesar has been claimed by fascists, as you say, then that ability to look sympathetically at Caesar just seems to disappear.
1: I think that's absolutely true. But I think there's a further dimension, which is that in Britain and generally in European countries, the study of Latin and of classical culture is associated with elites. And so the ability to speak Latin becomes a marker of being upper class. And that, of course, is a trope that Rhys Morgan, Boris Johnson make great play with.
0: We'll tweet the link at tppodcast underscore to Tom Holland's fantastic website. There is so much there. Next week, Chris Brook is back. Where's he been for the last year? We're going to talk about the euro elections, the fate of British politics. The week after that, we're talking to Jared Diamond, author of Guns, Germs, Steel, and most recently, Upheaval, about the fate of the world. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics.